Blog Talk Radio. podcast. Uh, I'm sure by now everyone is aware of the passing away of Tom Seaver one week ago today, uh, and he's off to that great pitcher's mound in the sky. We're going to talk about it. We're going to commiserate, revisit his career. We're going to mourn and celebrate the man also known as the franchise. Uh, We hope to be joined shortly by Sam Maxwell, our COO uh, of podcasting, as we like to joke. Uh, But in the meantime, let me bring on uh, my other partner and this afternoon's guest, Alan from Connecticut, major Met fan. I know he has a heavy heart as well, Rich Sparago. Hello, my friend. Rich. Rich. Going once, going twice. We'll hold that thought. In the meantime, uh, our, our guest this afternoon is, uh, how shall I say, a, a Mets authority. Uh, he's a good friend of the show. Uh, we love speaking with him each and every time he joins us. Faith and fear and flushing, Greg Prince. Hello, my friend. Mike, how are you? Uh, getting getting to this, uh, how have you dealt with this pandemic? We haven't spoken in a while. It's been too long, unfortunately, and uh, we won't let this uh, next uh, next time go as long. So how have you been, my friend? How have you been getting through this, your immediate family and otherwise? Uh, we are fine, thank you very much. Uh, you know, it's been a long haul as it's been for everybody, but Knockwood, the health has been fine, and uh, you know, we uh, we went without baseball for a few months. Uh, we got it back just now for about uh, clo- closing in on about six weeks, and it, it will be gone before we know it. Uh, we should only uh, hope that a certain virus is gone before we know it. Probably not that simple, but uh, we're we're doing fine. Thank you. <laughs> Good to hear that, and. As far as the rest of it in this virus, all that remains to be seen. Let's cross our fingers. I do believe we're rejoined by Rich Sparago. Is that true? Yes, you are, Mike. How are you? I'm doing well, my friend. Catch us up. Uh, how was the week that was in Sparago land? Well, what a, what a week. What a week emotionally. You know, um, it, it, it felt like, I mean, at least to me, it felt like we were just settling into the baseball season a little bit. You know, last Saturday, last uh, Saturday and Sunday against the Yankees were abysmal, but but that's part of being a Met fan. You, know, you have to feel baseball pain to be a Met fan. Um, and then they, how ironic, you know, they go down to Baltimore to play the Orioles, and we all know that the symbolism of that. 
And then we hear that about the passing of Tom Seaver on Wednesday night when the Mets were playing the Orioles. I mean, there's just something about that that really stuck to me. And, and so we have that. And then, okay, then the stirring went on Thursday. Great. You know, bet your emotions come back up a little bit, you know, and you kind of have the feeling that Seaver's looking down at them and all of that. Then you kind of come out on the other end, you know, important series. Let's face it. If you want to make the postseason in 2020, this is an important series. And you kind of get into that. At least I felt it. This was the first real baseball emotion I felt all year. Um, and then you hear about the passing of Lou Brock. And I know we'll touch on that. So, so what a weird week. And I guess that's where I am. I mean, it's just a, a, a confluence of a very strange emotions. Another one, Lou Brock. Rest well. Uh, Greg, you know, there is baseball going on. Uh, let's just uh, wrap the Mets up as they in, in their present condition briefly uh, because we do want to spend time on Tom Seaver, and, and rightfully so. So here we have this team that is now 19-23 and 23 after today's game. Uh, you know, a resilient comeback. They take the lead and, and then blow it, or whichever uh, verb you want to use. There's 18 games left in the season. So uh, I'll throw this at you. I think Gary Cohen on, on the telecast, he said today, you know, this is a pennant race. And do you agree with that? You know, given the parameters of the playoff situation, you know, all it takes is a very good week to pretty much be a playoff team. So, in that sense, I suppose it is a pennant race. The Mets aren't playing like it, though, or at least they're not succeeding to the uh, to the extent that you sort of have to if you want to get serious. I mean, I think they've been hovering a couple of games, give or take, from that final wild card spot, maybe a game or so beyond that to get to second place in the division, which guarantees them a playoff spot in this year's setup. And, you know, they are giving us a day here and a day there where we say, boy, they, they can do this. And then they give us just enough of a day, or I should say just enough of a portion of a day like Today, where we say, boy, I don't think so, because, you know, today was, you know, it was right there on the table. Uh, They led 7-6 after being down 6-0, and they lost 9-8. And although one can certainly delve into the details and find many a positive, uh, that's a loss. And with 18 games remaining, that takes you just a little bit further from being that playoff team. So it, it's, again, it's an absurdly short season. We understand why we're playing such a short season. And we did just get started, and now we're in the home stretch. So, uh, you know, that they have a chance. And if, not, if nothing else, they've, you know, given us something to concentrate on for a few hours a night, and they're going to give us something uh, to agonize over that isn't, Really world-shaking, but it would see it would be nice uh, if we could get something for our agony as Mets fans. 
But uh, for right now, you know, again, we're talking about a team that's under 500, and whether you're talking 42 games total or what would normally be 144 games total with 18 to go, four games under 500 does not indicate, wow, this is uh, this is quite a baseball team here. So we're gonna we're gonna have to let them uh, let them play, and uh, they're gonna have to show us. I want to throw this around a second time. Uh, maybe we'll touch it on something uh, that we haven't. Uh, I'll play contrarian, Rich. You know, when you're 19 and 23, that says there's more negative than positive things to speak of. Uh, how do you use? How, excuse me. How do you view that? And uh, Todd Frazier's back on the scene. How do you feel about that? Um, so how do I view it? Well, you know, it's really in such a short season, it's what have you done for me lately? And so they are playing better baseball as of late. You know, it's the truth. I mean, and and like Greg said, a week is really a defining period of time. So last Monday was something you didn't expect. DeGrom gets a two run lead, Mets lose the game, but they've played better since. You know, the pieces look better. The bullpens looked a bit better. The starting pitching seems to be, you know, you're not going to see Ariel Gerardo anymore, Gerardo anymore, you know, so that there, it seemed like a few things were starting to fall in place. But more importantly than that, the intangible of this week against the Phillies, they looked more prepared. They looked more energetic or whatever it might be, but they just looked like a better baseball team, at least to me in the past week. So what I would say to that, Mike, is, um, Given the events of re- of late, I think they are prepared for the last 18 games, and I think they they can do what they need to do to get into the postseason. I really do believe that. Uh, there are a game where they might be as far as, as two games out after today, uh, depending upon what happens on the West Coast. So, um, but but they could do it, and, and they really can. You know, you've got a couple against the Orioles coming up. You've got the Blue Jays, who yes, I know don't sleep on the Blue Jays. They're they can hit. They don't pitch much. Um, but, but I think the Mets are there and I, and I think I'd rather have this version of the Mets than the one that we had a couple of weeks ago. So that, that's my short answer on that. And about Todd Frazier coming back, I didn't really understand that at the time, um, this team, as you and I have spoken about many times, Mike, is, is a team of pieces that don't fit together. It's like you took two jigsaw puzzles, put them in one bucket, shook it up and said, here's your team. The pieces don't necessarily work. I mean, you saw Frazier hardly played this entire series. So if you have somebody who's not going to play, then you have a wasted roster spot, don't you? Shouldn't you have somebody who might slot in in a complementary way to your other pieces? So I have nothing against Frazier. I know he he brings veteran leadership, and he's certainly, you know, the joking with Alonzo about the bat and all of that. But from a pure baseball perspective, Help me understand how it made sense. The guy isn't played because there's no spot. Anyway, that's where I am. Greg, feel free to pop some uh, thought bubbles. Uh, I'm happy to have Frazier back. I don't know why, but I'm happy to see him. Makes me feel good. He's <laughs> familiar. He, uh, something of a polar bear whisperer, apparently, and if, if that's uh, there's some value in that, I'm happy to have it. Uh, yeah, they you know, aesthetically haven't been a, a bad team to watch lately. They were a dreadful team to watch when this mini season began and they've certainly had their moments of, of awfulness uh, as recently as last weekend uh, against the Yankees but you know they've more or less uh, represented themselves well for a few days it is odd to me uh, in the wake 
of a trade deadline, which kind of came along when I don't think anybody was really thinking about it, or at least when I wasn't thinking about it. And in the tenth inning today, uh, Miguel Castro is pitching, and Robinson Chirino is catching. I'm thinking, not so much who are these guys, but what are these guys doing here? <laughs> and I realized they were brought in to uh, to shore up a couple of spots that certainly needed shoring up. But you just get the feeling that your your season is now in the hands of two guys who hadn't given any thought to whatsoever until August 31st when the word came down that here's two guys the Mets have gotten in addition to Todd Frazier. And, hey, it's a... 7-7 game in the 10th inning against uh, the division rival you really need to beat. And here's one of these guys throwing to another one of these guys who were not a part of your life a week ago. And, you know, with, with all the coming and going of players this year, it, it seems, I suppose, appropriate that you're, you're trusting your fate in Miguel Castro being on the same page with Robinson Chirinos. So, uh, you know, it's, it's not like we haven't seen deadline trades and even you know, August 31st trades made in the past uh, to, to mixed results, but it just struck me as things were already pretty strange, and this makes them just a little stranger. So, uh, yeah, let's, uh, you know, again, it's an 18-game season now, guys. So uh, four games below or not start. Start going one and zero every day. Start going one and zero tomorrow night, and take it from there. It is September. We 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 can say that much. You're listening to a Metsian podcast. Our guest this afternoon is Greg Prince from Faith and Fear in Flushing. We hope to be joined by Sam Maxwell shortly. Uh, he decided to troll the Jersey Shore this weekend, and now he's paying the price in traffic. So hopefully he can join us. Uh, Gentlemen, you know, there's no skirt in the issue. Uh, The three of us have seen Tom Seaver pitch. Sam would have been the exception. He never got to see him pitch. And I'm interested, very interested in his perspective. For me personally, it would be like someone asking me uh, my opinion for, say, pick somebody, uh, Sandy Colfax. I never saw him pitch. Uh, So, you know, my my input would be limited and it would be anecdotal based on whatever research and, and, and stories that were handed down to me. Uh, but here's an instance where all three of us saw him pitch and I thought we would handle it this way. Uh, I have, you know, two or, or three different avenues that I'd like to approach this topic. So instead of all of us just trying to get it all out in one in one breath, you know, we'll go several times around the room, you know, think to yourselves the different ways uh, that we're about to revisit the life and career of Tom Terrific, Tom Seaver, the franchise. So uh, I will start. And one of the ways I approach this, You know, growing up, you know, I, I, I saw Saber from with, with extensive memory from 73 to 77. Uh, 73 mostly through 
my relatives, my aunt, my uncle, my mom, my cousins, uh, they kept me on and abreast of, you know, 1973. 74 is when I claimed total recall. But if you rewind to those days, which you can, used to can, uh, before the advent of reality television, think back, there was nobody who was demonstrating to me this seven and eight and nine-year-old, the level of comportment that Tom Seaver was demonstrating to me, say, on Kindness Corner. Think about what the seven and eight and the nine-year-old is doing in those days. Watching Looney Tunes or Wonderama, Captain Kangaroo, Spider-Man, Happy Days, the Merv Griffin Show, Abbott and Costello, or the Bowery Boy. I certainly wasn't getting that lesson from Archie Bunker, Homer Tyler Moore, not Godzilla, and I don't mean to suggest I'm crying at this very moment, or Evil Knievel, or Planet of the Apes, or Richard Nixon for that matter. But Tom Seaman just displayed such comportment that I wasn't receiving, say, from television, outside of my father, who was a serious and sober man, a compassionate man. But, you know, outside of relatives and, and, your, and your role models in life, think of role models. And I wouldn't, I'm, I'm not quick to apply that to athletes. Tom Seaver is an exception. His level of professionalism and comportment was a lesson to the 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 year olds. So while I try to gather myself, Greg, I'll hand it off to you. I think, uh, you know, I think you, you found a, uh, a good category uh, where Tom Seaver excelled beyond all the others that are listed on baseball reference comportment, professionalism, maturity. You know, he modeled what it was like to be outstanding in so many ways when you were a kid in that era. You mentioned Kiner's Corner. You know, my, my mind immediately shot back to a weekend in 1975, the weekend when Ralph Kiner was inducted into the Hall of Fame Ergo, they had to record Kiner's Corner in advance because Ralph very rarely took any time off from doing Mets games, but he was going to be in Cooperstown. And they they recorded a Kiner's Corner that was Ralph and Tom speaking. And the caveat, or the, the, the reason Tom was the guest, was... I don't remember if it was explicit or it was implicit, but I think it was something along the lines of Ralph saying, well, you know, we're, we're going to talk to somebody who is someday going to be in the Hall of Fame. And at that point, Tom was in his ninth season in the major leagues, and, you know, it, it was a done deal. You know, all, all he needed to do was show up for a tenth season, and uh, he would qualify, and, of course, he you know, went on for 20 seasons. But he was such a presence in those days on television, in the rotation of he was, you know, the Met of Mets and the player of players, the star of stars, the New York 
icon of New York icons at a time when we weren't short of having icons in New York and sports and other things. And I think the reason it resonates so much this week is that's a long shadow to cast. Uh, there hasn't been anybody like that in a Mets uniform for the long haul the same way. On that pedestal, climbing that mountain, staying up there, being the kind of personality that people of a certain age turn back to 50 years, give or take, and say, he was my favorite, he was my idol, he was the ideal. And for it to be passed along through the generations and for it to maintain as it has and for being somebody who I I think he is that relatively rare figure in these days where somebody doesn't have to say, I never saw him, so I I don't know anything. I think he's that big. No, there's a phrase people use a lot these days. I can't relate because I didn't see him. I wasn't around then. I wasn't watching. And, you know, I understand that there there is an anecdotal foundation to a, a lot of what we see. But conceptually, if you're a Mets fan, especially if you're a baseball fan, if you have any kind of awareness of the two, you you cannot be unaware of what Tom Seaver meant in terms of those things we, we were saying about comportment, professionalism, maturity, elevating the franchise, the lower case franchise as he did, establish, establishing the franchise as he did. That's that's a phrase he used. He made them legitimate. So all, all of that stuff, uh, I think, goes into, you know, a shall we say, a former child's viewpoint of what it was like to watch Tom Siebert in the 1970s and why it stays with us, you know, here in 2020 and why when, you know, we learned that he had died, it was just such a gut punch that, uh, you know, that this guy... <laughs> This guy's too big to be gone. And in, in a way, you know, that, that means he's never gone, you know. He's, he's no longer with us, but he's, he's with us forever. I, I, I'd be remiss uh, if we didn't send our sympathies and our thoughts and prayers to the Seaver family. Uh, my mistake for not doing that earlier. So, Rich, pick it up. George Thomas Seaver. Well, um, you know, when you think about Seaver, you could think about it, as you said, Mike, from a lot of different perspectives. You know, do you want to talk about his accomplishments as a pitcher? Okay. We know them. Um, Cy Young in 69, 71, 75. Um, all the different accolades, all different records, individual performances, you know, the imperfect game. Um, One that not a lot of people talk about, at least not as much, but very important was game four of the 69 world series um, where Seaver pitched a 10 inning complete game and the Mets won the bottom of the 10th. Think about that. 
first of all, I can make the, the wise crack about how you'd never see a starter go 10 innings in any game, let alone a World Series game now. But, but beyond that, the Mets were ahead two games to one. And think about who the Orioles were. And, and Seaver shut them down. He was not going to let them win game four. And he went 10 innings. He did whatever he had to do to make sure it didn't happen. So you have that. And then you have, um, think about game five of the 1973 NLCS against the Reds. Seaver was not at his best that game. If people forget, he walked five batters. I think he only had four strikeouts um, only, you know, in quotes. But, but he, he willed the Mets to win. He was not going to let them lose that game. He didn't have his best stuff. And, and we all know that's the mark of a great pitcher, a guy who wins when he doesn't have his best stuff. So individual stuff. Then there's the team stuff. It's all been written about before. I've written it myself, um, where legitimizing a franchise. You know, in 1967, the Mets had been bumbling idiots, you know, through 1966, and now they had a rookie of the year. They had this guy everybody was talking about. In 1969, you've probably seen the video of him on the airplane when the Mets had um, achieved the 500 mark. And, he, and he's leaning against the window of the plane, and the reporter, I guess the reporters traveled the team back then, says to him, you know, Tom, you guys are 500. That's great. And he looks at the guy like, no, it's not. We're 500. We're not, we're not done here. Are you kidding me? And, he, and I don't know what the exact words were, but that's what his, his implication was, no, no, no. I'm not going to let this franchise settle for mediocrity. I'm going to make sure that I don't let that become a standard. The standard isn't here. The standard is winning. And so he did that for the franchise, you know, and, and he, when you became, I became a Mets fan as a kid, everybody else was a complimentary piece. Uh, yeah. I love Jerry Grody. I love Bud Harrelson. I love Cleon Jones and Tommy Agee and all these guys, but they were all the supporting cast and it was Seaver's team and everybody knew it. You know, think about teams now, like you can think about today's Mets. Is it Michael Conforto's team? Maybe I happen to think so. Other people will tell you it's Pete's team. Other people might tell you it's McNeil's team or Nimmo's team. But back then, there was no debate. It was Seaver's team. And that's when you, when you were a Met fan as a kid, as we all were back then, you, Seaver was your guy. I mean, you love the other guy, sure, but Seaver was your guy. And then you can look at the third perspective, which is him as a person, um, his professionalism, the intellectual nature of the way he approached pitching. You know, people call Greg Maddox the professor. Seaver was a professor before Greg Maddox. Seaver took that intellectual approach to pitching, and he backed it up with an absolutely dominating ability. He wasn't somebody who nibbled around the corners. He combined that intellectual approach with immense talent, Doc Gooden-like talent. Don't see that that much. And, and so those are the perspectives I'd like to have. And I want to share one thing. I have to say this. Um, I had a Seaver encounter um, in, in 2003. I was, it was a Sunday, late Sunday afternoon. I was flying to San Francisco for business. And I'm sitting in the boarding area, and here comes Tom Seaver. The Mets had just played. He was in the broadcast booth at the time. And he literally sat three, three chairs away from me in, in the waiting area. And I said to myself, oh, my God, I, I couldn't. I just could not speak to the man. I, I could not. And so the entire flight, you know, six-hour flight to San Francisco, he's in first class, of course. And, um, and here's why I'm sharing this story. I'm sharing this story because he's in first class. And I said, I have to go use the restroom up there because I want to just see what he's doing. 
he had a briefcase with him and he had papers on his, um, on his tray table. These papers were all statistics. They were all things that he would read to help him be better at being a broadcaster. Doesn't that sound familiar? He was always trying to be the best at what he did. You heard it today, you know, with Craig Swan on, on the broadcast talking about how Seaver, whether it was bridge, whether it was anything wanted to be the best, he wanted to be the best broadcaster. All these papers spread everywhere and it was all baseball stuff. And I just glanced at it and kind of smiled as I walked by. We walked off the plane, long walk to the baggage claim. I was five feet behind him. Nobody went up to him. I kept saying to myself, you're going to regret this if you don't at least say you're a Met fan and thank you. And I never did. Um, I regret it, but, you know, uh, it's going to – I. the man's gone now, like Greg said, not really gone, but gone from the earth in, in human form. Um, his legacy lives. I'll never get that chance again. And, you, you know, I um, – I think about that and it's been 17 years and I'll never stop thinking about it. So that's my, that's my deal. Yeah. We're going to keep throwing this around. Uh, I'm going to pick up on something that both of you gentlemen said, uh, Greg, I'll start with you when you brought up the uniform and the prestige he brought to the uniform. That's why I get so pissed off when the Mets deviate, uh, because of, because of just that prestige he brought to that uniform. He made that uniform a classic and we got to, you know, put our minds back into the expansion era and, and how you view those Mets and, and, and how he made that uniform an instant classic. Not like these cray, boxes of Crayola crayons that, you know, they would go on to gain in, in the late 70s and even through today. That uniform is classic, and that's why I get upset when they deviate from that. And Tom Seaver has everything to do with that. And, and Rich, you brought up the supporting cast, Tom Seaver being the man. Uh, and everybody came after that. And it's funny because, you know, my top three all-time favorite Mets, in, in no particular order, Kuzman, Tug McGraw, and Rusty Stop. It's funny that Tom Stevens doesn't make the list, and here's why. It's because when I was a kid, he was already great. He was already a legend. I deified him. I wouldn't even speak his name. <laughs> you, you know, if I could say that in jest. Uh, but he, he was above and beyond everybody. So I just put him up on his pedestal and then dealt with everything else. Because uh, in part because of what I was witnessing and in part because of the education being given to me by, again, aunts and uncles. Another story I'd like to get into is just that family. And my pop, he was a Yankee fan. And my uncle, uh, he was a Yankee fan, but me and my my cousin and I, we were Met fans, and we get that from our mom's side of the family. Uh, but, you know, going back to 73, I was fortunate enough to go to old Yankee Stadium before the renovation. Uh, and between my father and I, you know, there was a, a, a friendly rivalry, a nice rivalry between us, him being the Yankee fan, me being the Met fan. Uh, but the Yankees were always so inconsequential to me. I didn't hate them. Even in 76. And I was at game five of the ALCS when Chris Chambliss hit that home run. And it still, today, stands as one of the greatest baseball experiences of my whole life. But the Yankees were inconsequential to me because, well, A, in 76 and years before, you know, this was still 
quote unquote, at least my uncle told me this is a mess of town. You know, but we had Tom Seaver. He trumped anything that was going on in the Bronx outside of a pennant. But let us not forget in seventy six, you know, to that point in their history, they won the most the second most games in their history. So I was cool. The Yankees didn't bother me. <laughs> you know, so I delved with my father into the Yankees. We had a good time, but he never cheated me as far as taking me to see Met games. Never. We It was an equal amount. And the thing is, my father was a huge, huge Tom Seaver fan. Just like you have a favorite ball player from another team, he was a huge Tom Seaver fan. And he made it his business to make sure we, were as, we, we attended as many Tom Seaver starts uh, as possible, uh, as work would permit, etc., and things of that nature. But he was a huge Tom Seaver fan, and we connected on that level. And again, you know, you're going back to childhood and the relevance that this man has on, on lives and, you know, the relevance people can have on impactful children. And again, I'll, I'll reiterate that I'm not one to label sports figures, athletes as heroes. The Tom Seaver is in the conversation, most definitely, most definitely. So, Greg, I'll throw it back to you. Well, you know, I was a kid, 1969, six years old, kind of stumbled into baseball and the Mets on my own. Uh, Not a lot of baseball fandom in my family, although I always like to say uh, they never discouraged me. But uh, it was me, you know, grabbing the paper out of my father's briefcase and turning on the TV and so on. And, you know, I just gravitated to Tom Seaver almost immediately that fall. And he stuck with me into the next season. Got off to a great start in 1970. And I didn't really need another favorite player after that. And when I think about the the whole concept of favorite players, sort of like you guys were saying, you know, I liked everybody on the Mets for the most part. And a few of them I had, you know, bizarre little attachments to as a child will. But until about 1975, I'd say it was Tom Seaver and everybody else. And everybody else was fine and great and very fond of, but there was Tom Seaver. And he was my favorite. And I I, I know I'm not alone in using that phrase, it's uh, got, got a lot of wear this week uh, from a lot of people uh, who were around then. But it's like everything was fine when Tom Seaver was pitching. I mean, he didn't win every game because nobody wins every game. But, you know, you, you knew the Mets were going to have an advantage when it came to pitching. Uh, every fifth day, more or less, for, you know, in, in my case, from 1969 until 1977. And if you got anything, if you, if you got those great starts out of Kuzman and Matlack and the, the occasional game out of Ray Sadecki, who was probably my second favorite Met when I was seven years old, but, you know, in another universe because the receiver and everybody else and can start throwing names around. But, you know, that, that was the amazing thing to me that the Mets had him. Because when I looked at baseball at that age, 
you know, the superstars of the game, the, the guys who were just on, on Mount Olympus, uh, were on other teams. <laughs> you know, and until the Mets got him, Willie Mays was on another team. Hank Aaron was on another team. Lou Brock, who I certainly considered in that realm, was on another team. And Johnny Bench and Pete Rose and Tony Perez and Billy Williams. And I can go on. And I was used to the idea that the Mets didn't have those types of guys. In, in my mind, they didn't have anybody who wasn't a pitcher who was what you would call a star player until they got Rusty Staub. And then when you know Willie Mays in his twilight joined them. But we had Tom Seaver, and that took care of everything. Didn't take care of the scoring, but from a, a self-image standpoint when uh, you're, you're identifying with a team, when you decide to become a fan of that team, uh, you know, we took a backseat to nobody. And I knew there were great pitchers on other teams in the National League. That Bob Gibson was pitching for the Cardinals and Fergie Jenkins was pitching for the Cubs. And Steve Blass had some great years for the Pirates. Don Sutton was out there for the Dodgers. Steve Carlton was coming up for the Cardinals and moving on to the Phillies. And the other names I could throw at you, Phil Necro uh, throwing a knuckleball. But we had Tom Seaver. So we were not only in the conversation, we were at the head of the conversation when it came to pitching, when it came to pitching certainly every fifth day. When it came to the excitement every Sunday of turning to that page in the paper where you saw the pitching leaders, whether they were arranged by ERA, whether they were arranged by winning percentage. Sometimes you got that during the week as well. And that, that little bolded agate type, Seaver, NY, the top of the wins, top of the earned run average, the top of the strikeouts. They're in complete games and innings pitched. And you just felt good about it. And you felt good every July because you knew he was going to be named to the all-star team. First all-star game I ever watched, he was the starting pitcher in 1970. And it struck me as the most natural thing in the world. Here are all the best players in baseball. And right there, holding the ball and starting the game, is Tom Seaver of the New York Mets. And, uh, you know, it was just something you were you relied on. And because it was what you knew, me, I, no, I'm not going to say I didn't appreciate it. I appreciated it a lot because I realized not everybody was Tom Seaver, but it was being in, the, in a world where that was the case, where we had the best pitcher and a guy who knew so much about pitching, who worked on the pitching, who prepared. And the reason I knew that is because I grabbed every book I could that had his name on it by Tom Seaver or you know, with Tom Seaver as told to somebody else. And I, I couldn't get enough of the guy. And and he seemed like, you know, use phrases like superhero. I wouldn't necessarily go with that because, you know, there wasn't anything athletically imposing about him other than how hard he threw the ball. He was like, I don't want to say a regular guy, but he was a human being who could do extraordinary things on a baseball field. And then he could talk about them, whether it was on Kiner's Corner, if you saw him interviewed um, on Sportscast or, or wherever you might find him. And you know, he was just so all-encompassing that way. And 
just throw, throw, throw this in as, as long as uh, I'm thinking of all the things he could do. He could hit, and he could run. He's one of the – I have the statistics somewhere, one of those little rabbit holes I went down. If I'm not mistaken, Tom Seaver is in the top 30 all-time in pinch running appearances as a Met and third most among Met pitchers ever. Uh, just that's a small thing, but it just shows you how well suited and prepared he was for every aspect of the game, and you just knew it, and it was exciting. The, 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 old, the only downside of that, uh, you know, when you're a kid, is it ruins you for everybody else who comes along. Uh, even though there'd be some some really great pitching to come from the Mets years later. And there was some really great pitching alongside Tom Seaver. Certainly don't don't mean to diminish anybody who was his teammate. But once you're six years old, seven years old, and and this to you is the way it's supposed to be, everything else is just a step down. But, uh, you know, that's okay because (laughs) you, you were up there, Mount Olympus, Tom Seaver, you've got that, like I said, the rest of your life. And I'm just so glad we did. You're listening to a Metsian podcast this afternoon with Faith and Fear and Flushing's Greg Prince. At this time, I'd like to bring on, you know, we have fun. We call him our COO, and I promised him a new moniker if and when the Mets fell. In the meantime, Sam, welcome. Uh, glad you could find time to join the show. How are you, my friend? And uh, we've been obviously talking about Tom Seaver. So uh, anywhere you care to pick up, the stage is yours. Well, I just—I always have to let you guys know where in the tri-state I am. I am uh, just south of Point Pleasant Beach, uh, on one of those strips uh, of land that uh, that break off of the Jersey Shore. Um, and I think that you know, you meet Yankee fans, you meet Met fans all out here, and you know, everybody knows how important Tom Seaver was to this franchise. So important, in fact, that is his nickname. I think that. It, it it was even in, like, it was a gift, which is a very anachronistic way of being reminded of how good he is. But when, you know, just recently when he passed, I, I was tweeting out and, and I used a gift, and you just saw that art of pitching that always came up, whether he was talking about it or whether people were talking about Tom Seaver. It was that art of pitching that, you know, it's sometimes hard to decipher and pick up from from folks of this day and age, other than the great Jacob Degrom, who has has very rapidly put himself into the Sievers and the Kuzmans and the Matlacks and and the Goodens and all these great names that have come through the what are you know originally the Shea Mound and now the City Mound and. It, it was just a gift watching him, his form. It, it, it's, it was just mellifluous. And I'll, I'll leave with this before uh, uh, sending it back to you, Mike. When Johan Santana was traded, I'm not sure who, what programmer, what producer had this idea, but they, they said to themselves, let's get Johan Santana and Tom Seaver together to talk about pitching. And I... I hope that SNY can fish into their vault, which is crazy enough. This, this piece of programming is now 12 years old. But it was one of the most fascinating 
discussions I'd ever heard. Do I remember specifics of it at this point in my life? I don't. But that that half hour, it was just about a half hour of them talking about pitching and smiling the whole time while talking about pitching. And that's, that is one of the things that, that I remember about Tom Seaver is the enthusiasm he had for not only baseball but pitching itself. You know, I remember Gary saying how, or actually it was Ron, I believe, on uh, um, either SNY or also MLB Network recently. He was saying how he had that boyish charm his entire life. And, and that's what I remember about, about, you know, I wasn't lucky enough to watch him in person like you guys were. And I, I just remember from the legacy standpoint the art of pitching. Tom Seaver embodied the art of pitching and had a, a you know, I'll, I'll leave, I'm going to pass it on to you, Mike, and I keep uh, doing the Jewish goodbye, as I like to say, but he, <laughs> the, the thing, you know, when he got his number retired, he thought of it as such an art, as such like, 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 like an opera, almost, that he went to the top of the mound and he bowed to every section of Shea Stadium. I don't think it gets any better than that, of somebody understanding their role in life and their role on the ball field. Uh, he definitely knew his place within the organization. There's no doubt in my mind. Sam, are you staying with us? I'm here through uh, till 6 okay. o'clock. All right, very good. All right, Rich, I have a specific question for you. Uh, and, Greg, I have a specific one for you. I'm going to go to Rich first. So, Greg, I want you to contemplate because I want you to take us back and and encapsulate what happened with Dick Young, the sports writer. In the meantime, Rich, you take us back. You mentioned Tom Seaver's broadcasting career, post-playing. Everything after 1977, even including 1983, was to, was to me like the Twilight Zone. Uh, him in the Yankees broadcast booth, him winning his 300th in a Chicago White Sox uniform at Yankee Stadium, etc. the no-hitter. You specifically, 1983, that's your job, Rich. Um, you know, in 1983, Mike, going into that season – the Mets had, you think about 82, right? They had picked up George Foster and Frank Cashin was, you know, doing some things to try to bring the team closer to contention. Um, okay. And it totally backfired in 82. They were an absolutely horrible team. Uh, Foster left all of his talent in Cincinnati, but, but, but I think in, in the case of 1983, Cashin realized that, you know what, this is probably going to be a down year for us. Um, we have to just bide some time until these young pitchers are ready. So, I think bringing Seaver back was done for sentimental reasons. Sure, he could still pitch at that point in his career. And he actually had a decent 1983 statistics-wise, not win and loss-wise. The team was terrible. but um, So I think you know the Seaver reacquisition was, was kind of done for sentimental reasons to keep fan interest up, and that's part of being a general manager. Um, and, and I think in the case of Seaver, you're going to have to question it. You know, you, you could say some sentimental moves make no sense, but this one did. I mean, it was Tom Seaver and the Mets, right? So, okay. Um, so he comes back in 1983 and I was fortunate enough to be at the game, uh, when he was there 
And what I remember, and Greg, you maybe remember the same, or Mike, maybe you do as well, he did not take the ride in on the bullpen cart, which most pitchers did at that point, you know, the buggy with the Mets cap on it. He, um, he chose to walk in. I'm not sure if he just doesn't like the cart or if it was done for dramatic effect, but I'll tell you what, it was quite dramatic. The, the bullpen door opened, and, and here was Tom Seaver. I happened to be sitting down the right field line, you know, so maybe he was 100 feet in front of me walking toward the Mets dugout. What a moment. You know, what a moment. Um, the king had returned to the castle. And um, it was his castle, and he was back. And his royal subjects were there to welcome him. And um, so in 1983, it was kind of surreal. You know, Seaver would be on the mound every fifth day. Um, and it was, you know, you knew it wasn't the same, but it just felt good. I mean, it felt good to you. And let's not forget, in the postseason draft, you know, after 83, we all know what happened. He was left unprotected. And the White Sox took him. And so all of that good feeling went away. It was like, well, wait a minute. You, you brought the guy back, and you now you didn't protect him, and you, you didn't think some other team would pick him up, Frank? I mean, and Greg, I want you to comment on this, because I always thought that was intentional. I always, and to this day, I don't, and quite frankly, I don't care what anybody says, I do want your opinion. My opinion was they brought Sieber back, great. It, it kept fan interest up in 1983. The fans loved it. Everybody loved it. Cashman, the right thing. Honestly, when you leave this guy exposed and you know he's on the precipice of his 300th win and you know he's going to achieve some milestones, I, I don't buy this concept that we didn't think the White Sox would take him. I think it was time to clear him out to make way for these young guns coming in, and it was time to move to the next phase. And I think, and maybe that was a coldly calculated right thing to do by Cash. I'm not suggesting it wasn't. What I'm suggesting was I don't think it was a mistake. Cashin didn't make a lot of mistakes. And I don't think he was like, oh, my God, I didn't think anybody would take him. I, I can't believe that for a minute. I think it was we brought him back. He's gone now. We had to clear him out of here, out with the old and with the new. We, know we got what we wanted out of him. Okay, now it's time for Darling Good and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Dykstra, all these guys to come up and, and start the new, the new era. Anyway, I had to get that off my chest. I've always felt that way. I will always feel that way. Um, very interested to hear what you guys might say about that. But that's my 83 thing. Uh, that, that's my, those are my thoughts on 83. Pick it up, Greg. Well, uh, I'll start. 80, in January of 84 and work back to what you're asking about, Dick Young. Uh, I don't believe that Cashin, his front office, Davey Johnson for that matter, were quite that clever to have executed something like this. I think it was a blunder. I think there was an arrogance, the kind of arrogance that we saw from Frank Cashin and Al Harrison and Joe McElvain a few years later uh, when Post-86, the way they handled their personnel, I think this was a little taste of what was to come. Mostly because the Mets had, did not, they had Darling, they had Gooden, they had all, all this uh, talent in the minor leagues, but this was a last-place team, as, as encouraging as they were becoming the latter part of 1983. The Mets could not afford to just say, we don't need the guy who had 30 or so starts last year. Remember, this is a team that started 1984 with Mike Therese in the rotation, with Craig Swan on the staff and picking up Dick Kidrow. It's not like they were loaded just yet 
know, we, we didn't know what Dwight Gooden was going to be in terms of spring training and forcing everybody's hand. We knew from Ron Darling. We knew from Walt Terrell. So I don't think, uh, for, for all the stories I've read, the idea that Davey Johnson didn't want uh, a com- potentially competing voice in the clubhouse, I just think they screwed up, quite frankly. I think they just decided, you know, Tom Seaver's our guy, 39 years old. You want to protect prospects. If, if uh, you recall, there had been a whole thing the year before where the White Sox had grabbed Ferguson Jenkins from the Cubs, and the Cubs were like, don't do that, please. <laughs> you know, we we you know because they were in a similar situation. Uh, they had just brought back their icon, and uh, the White Sox begged off. So I think Cashin thought, you know, there was a gentleman's agreement or something. I could be wrong, but uh, I, I don't think that was really a plan. I think that we, as Mets fans, got lucky that as much as it annoyed us to not have Tom Seaver there, certainly at that moment in January of 84 when we learned he was drafted in this dopey draft for free agent compensation, and certainly as the milestones came along, uh, we, we didn't love the White Sox uniform, the Red Sox uniform in 1986, all of that. Uh, we had a great team to root for for a few years, so that certainly took the sting off of it. Uh, rewinding to 1977, uh, you know, the story had been percolating for a year plus that Tom Seaver could be traded. And Dick Young certainly pushed it over the edge with his column about Nancy Seaver is jealous of Ruth Ryan because Ruth Ryan's husband, no one makes more money than Tom does, which is an absolutely miserable thing <laughs> to, to speculate on, let alone write. Even if it was true, which I don't believe it was, because that just sounds so absurd for a classy person like Nancy Seaver to to live in that bubble, uh, that kind of thought. Um, And the fact that we know that Dick Young was doing the dirty work for M. Donald Grant, and this was all part of an ugly negotiation in the newspaper, and it never should have come to this. That, you know, when you realize that Tom Seaver is part of a line of New York sports icons, baseball icons, going back uh, through the the 20th century, say, well, who's letting those guys go? Of course, we realize that sometimes these guys did go, that Babe Ruth was let go by the Yankees, and that Christine Matthewson was let go by the Giants, although that was sort of as a favorite of a get him a chance to manage, but, you know, I don't want to go off track here. Um, you know, DiMaggio never went anywhere. Mantle never went anywhere. Garrett never went anywhere. Uh, Jackie Robinson was, if he was going anywhere, it was across town, but he never went anywhere. Uh, you know, it, it never should have come to that, but 1977 wasn't 1927, 37, uh, the old days, uh, vis-a-vis where we were then. So, you know, it was a, it was a different business. We knew it was a business. Even if you were a 14-year-old, as I was, you read the papers, you understood that there was a lot of money in base and sentiment could be lacking. And the only thing that got me through it, quite frankly, uh, got me through June 15, 1977, and the days and weeks and months thereafter, was personally, as someone who loved Tom Seaver, I wanted him to be on a really good hitting team where he wasn't losing one nothing and two to one and 
getting no decision for throwing uh, eight or nine shutout innings the way it seemed to happen so often uh, when the Mets weren't generating miracles. So there was a part of me that actually, I can't say I was glad that he was on the Reds, but I was glad he was going to go somewhere where they were going to hit for him. bugs me that it it didn't work out that uh, the Cincinnati Reds won one division title with Tom Seaver on staff as their ace. And, you know, they they had the best record in baseball in 1981, which got them jacked because of the split-season format. But um, the Mets had gone downhill in 77. That always bugs me when people say, you know, they traded Tom Seaver and and, and that was it. After that, the Mets fell apart. Well, the Mets had fallen apart (laughs) slightly before then. And it's not a license to trade Tom Seaver, mind you. But I, I shuddered at the thought that Tom Seaver was going to have to sit here and as a 32-year-old pitcher, and then you know as the years went by, pitch very well for this terrible team. Granted, I would have rooted for him, and I think he would have, you know, he would have persevered. But, uh, it bugged me that he was going to be on such a lousy team in 1977, and, and if there was any solace to be taken from him wearing a. Cincinnati Reds uniform as wrong as it was. It was like, well, at least Tom is going to have Johnny Bench and Pete Rose and Joe Morgan and Dan Dries and George Foster and Al behind him. And this, as usual, when you try to game plan these things, they, they never work the way you want them to. And I was you know, delighted when he took that walk in uh, for dramatic effects from the bullpen in 1983. And it felt like you know, all the wrongs had been righted and that he should never go away again. And, of course, he went away again. And, you know, management and a a perhaps headstrong legend could never seem to get on the same page for very long in all the years that followed. But we were fortunate that he came back one last time uh, in 87, uh, gave them an honest attempt, gave them an honest answer. He said, there are no more competitive pitches in my right arm. He retired as a Met, as the saying goes. He got that that number on the wall, that that great bowing to to the audience uh, from center stage. And uh, there was never a question uh, about that NY on his plaque in 1992. And, you know, after that, uh, he was our living legend. And now all we've got is all we can say is that the legend lives on and, and will forevermore. Sam, I'm going to let you get whatever you got on your chest off uh, before I do, and we wrap this up, I'd like to say. Uh, before I do, I'd just like one last comment. You know, Tom Seaver wasn't only the greatest Met in the organization's history. He's also one of New York City's premier titans of sport. Hmm. Think back to his era. Who? Or even before, in all of New York City history. Yes, this conversation includes Babe Ruth and you Lou Gehrig and the heroes since then, uh, including your Brooklyn Dodgers and your New York Giants and your New York football Giants and your Jets and Joe Namath and hockey stars, the gag line. Think about it. Think about all the greatness that has come through this city and now rank Tom Seaver. He should be mighty high on that list. Mighty high on that list. 
the man was a New York City titan, not just of the Mets. Sam, take it away. Hmm. Where to segue? Because uh, you know, I I had on my mind when you uh, were going to pass it to me about the other teams. Um, interesting, like you know, the the Reds specifically, of course, felt so inverted when it comes to, like, the actual physical, uh, the fashion of it all. You know, just seeing him in red always seems like red is the opposite of orange and blue, whether it's because of the Nationals, whether it's because of Tom Seaver on the Reds, whether it's because of the Phillies. That just seems to, to me that it is, it, it's always the, the color red in uniform is our nemesis. <laughs> and he was, weirdly enough, on that Red Sox team in 1986 there's all these like weird connections you know and, and i think he he uh apparently was across the way telling tim tuffle you know let, let's go get a drink or something like that um <laughs> I, you guys might be able to shed a little bit more light on that uh that part of the story but i mean you're absolutely right and, and you mentioned namath because when you were talking about Titans, i was i i immediately did go to his contemporary when it comes to to New York pop culture and sports pop culture at the time, I mean it's and, and again, we're talking about figures that didn't just make a mark on the sport that they played. We're talking about people that made a mark on pop culture. The 1969 Mets made a humongous uh, 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 mark on pop culture of the time, and Tom Seaver was at the forefront of that, and. Uh, you guys and Greg, you can speak to this uh, a little bit more clearly too. I mean, uh, Namath was, of course, the the was in like every single commercial. But Tom Seaver wasn't just sitting on the the sidelines when it came to advertising, correct? Oh yeah, he was uh, he was plenty uh, in demand and uh, certainly made himself available. Right. So it's it's that you know the way that. When you're record, when you're remembering this, it's not just about the sport. You know, we're talking about yes. I the first thing I think about is the art of pitching, but what like what you said, Mike, he transcended baseball, which is hard to do these days. And 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 he's not just one of the greatest titans in the history of New York sport. He's one of the greatest pitchers of all time, and quite possibly top five. And he played the majority of his time on the New York Mets. It's just a beautiful thing to say. And I'll leave it at that. Uh, unless anybody has any other things they'd like to, you know, broach, we'll go to our final word. I couldn't have said it more perfectly, Sam. Thank you. Uh, in, in the meantime, before I do that, uh, going once, by the way, going twice, sold. I think on behalf of the four of us here this afternoon at the Met Team Podcast try to extend our sympathies once again and our thoughts and our prayers are in our respective ways to the Seaver family uh, through this rather difficult time. Uh, childhood hero lost. All I can say is the first pitch of his forever game is delivered and the perfect game that never ends begins. So, Rich, I'll turn it over to you for your final word, sir. Um, 
you know, I'm going to use a word that we use a lot, probably overused, and that's going to be perspective. And, and the reason for that is um, this whole week has been all about perspective. You know, let's just keep the perspective. It's great to have baseball back. There's a worldwide pandemic going on and, and we have a source of entertainment and, and need to be thankful for that. And the reason that became so prominent is the people who do this for us and give us something to watch and something to have podcasts over and blogs to write, they're human beings and, and they go through stuff and they pass away like any other human being. Um, you know, and a bit of our childhood, at least for the three of us, uh, passed away this week. Um, and it just brings it all back. You know, it's a game, you know, it's entertainment. And, and when something like this happens, you realize, you know, it's, um, it's, life is bigger than this, but let's just keep perspective on this stuff. And because, you know, and and it hits you and it bites you in the butt when, when something like this happens and, you know, and and you realize that these guys aren't bigger than life. They're just guys and and they're subject to the same thing as anyone else. So um, that, that's my word is, is perspective. Let's be thankful. We have baseball. Let's recognize there's a worldwide pandemic. Let's hope everybody stays safe and healthy. And let's just realize that these are human beings. That's it. Prince from Faith and Fear in Flushing, sir, on behalf of Rich and Sam, thank you. Thank you very kindly for your time this afternoon. Uh, And thank you for everything you've uh, shared with us today regarding Tom Seaver. So thank you and your final word, sir. Uh, thanks very much for inviting me on for this occasion. I'm just going to throw out the <laughs> the words that meant the most to me, uh, I guess it was 49 years ago. Uh, the, the, their words, their numbers, 20 and 10, 289 strikeouts, 1.76 ERA. Uh, I've always loved that line. Uh, Tom Seaver's 1971. Uh, did not quite impress Cy Young voters that year, but uh, he was what, well, ten and eight, something like that. Uh, I just wrote about it the other day. I should remember, uh, like late July, early August, and he said, "I need to win twenty games." That uh, that was the standard, and he goes out there and gets to game one sixty two, throws a complete game, which is you know par for the course for Tom Seaver, and he wins his 20th game. And, you know, there were seasons where he won more games and, and was awarded for it, and there were seasons where he led the Mets to a world championship and into a world series besides, but there was something about the way he finished that year that, you know, just has always stayed with me. And you know, he was already my favorite player. That that was the summer, 1971, that I wore number 41 in Pee Wee League. Uh, I was afraid I wasn't going to be able to get number 41 <laughs> because I figured every kid was going to want it, but they weren't really that strict. So I wore 41. It was the summer I picked up my first Tom Seaver book, The Perfect Game, which I thought was would be about the Jimmy Qualls game, but he was writing about game four of the uh, 1969 World Series because that's what meant the most to him. And, you know, also talking about, uh, you know, the aspirational, always trying to be his best. And it was the year that I, you know, saw a, a, a top flight athlete, idol, whatever you want to call him, have, have a goal, and he got it. 
and he had a goal to, to win a World Series a couple of years before, but that this was something very singular and very perfect to me as an eight-year-old. And it's always stayed with me, and there have been some great Met pitching seasons since. You could certainly say there have been some that have exceeded it. But uh, I think I will carry uh, carry those numbers with me, 20 and 10, 289, and 1.76. And uh, that was that was the perfect season to me. And uh, I think it always will be. So uh, thank you, number 41, and uh, thanks for staying with me all this time. Third all-time in strikeouts upon his retirement. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Dr. J. Willis, Reed, and Clyde in my, uh, you know, litany of legends. Uh, Sam, I'm going to hand over the baton to you, your final word. Take us home. I'm done. You're in charge. Well, I will say that soak it up, you know, just going off of what uh, has been echoed here. Um, Soak it up. Life is short, and there's a major disconnect. Even though every single one of us knows that we're we're not long for this world, every single one of us is not long for this world. Um, but there's a major disconnect in seeing anybody who's just walking around and trying to comprehend that one day that person will be still. Let alone the figures that that project themselves to the the top of our media landscape, which is rather a a new world, uh, only really 120 years old, uh, of the way not only that we take in sports, but the way we take in uh, images. And that has created even more of a disconnect because we have these weird cycles where the careers, we see the mortality start to play into it, especially by the, by their mid thirties and and late thirties. And, you know, we, Tom Seaver was 75 years old. That's generally, yeah, it's, it's older, but I, I, you know, we, we've, we've talked to Carl Erskine, who's pushing 94. Um, So 75 is not, it's, it's too young. And especially with the way he, you know, the disease that he had, it's, it's so tragic. And the way it takes away personality, and we can only hope that it didn't take it away for him and his family that much by the end there. Um, I'm going to reiterate what you said, Mike, about, you know, uh, the, the condolences going out to the Seaver family um, and, and the Mets family as a whole. Um, it's bittersweet that, you know, we, we can revel in his career, but it's just so unfortunate that we have not been able to, we, we have not been able to revel in it as a franchise the way the proper owners would and the proper, the proper owners should have done it. And, and it's, it's unfortunate that that's the case, but now hopefully ASAP will have a whole new set of owners that, will think about this stuff and not be completely tone deaf to the franchise that they, they own. Um, and not to end on a sour note, let's think about the fact that one way or another, there is a statue on its way. It's a long time coming. It's unfortunately happened after his death, but it is coming and there's going to be a whole nother level of education and legacy building 
when it comes to Tom Seaver and what he means for the New York Mets and what he means for baseball. Um, and I think that 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 basically says it. And, and the only way to uh, to finish this is is just you know rest easy up there, franchise, and let's go Mets. Take care, everybody. Happy Labor Day. Uh, love your loved ones. Give big hugs whenever you can. Uh, and, and social distance, of course, all the other times. Have a good one, everybody.